There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Atcock Incrum OTC, sponsors of Brave. What is the societal fascination for serial killers all about? Who are these people who live amongst us, undetected, until they are not, going about their crimes? What does it take to track them down, identify, and apprehend? Our topic today is the psychology of serial killers, and our guest today is Gerard Lobeskachny. Now, Gerard is an extremely well-qualified professional. He holds two master's degrees, one in clinical psychology and the other in criminology. He also has a PhD in psychology and a law qualification in that he has an LLB. Now, for 14 years, he headed up the South African Police Services Specialized Investigative Psychology Section and was the SAPS Chief Profiler. Currently, he is a director of a company, LNS Threat Management, which specializes in threat assessment. In addition, he holds various honorary academic positions at both the University of the Witwatersrand and UNISA. And in 2021, he published the book, The Profiler Diaries from the Case Files of a Police Psychologist. Gerard, after that lengthy introduction, welcome. And thanks for making the time to, to, to join us. Before we get into the specifics of today's conversation, could you define a serial killer technically and maybe descriptively? Because I know that there are various definitions out there, and I think it's important to get our frame of reference. Yeah, thank, well, thanks for having me. Um, that's often been a debated issue, even sort of in the academic literature, and and there's various sort of um, criteria that you know, people talk about. Is it the number? Is it the attitude? Is it uh, going to be something that is sexually motivated before you can call it a murder series? So partly to deal with this whole issue in 2005, the FBI – sort of had a, a sort of international symposium where they invited people from throughout the world to come and sit and discuss and get some kind of consensus on this, the definition, and, and other kind of issues that are often debated. And I was very, very fortunate enough to to attend that. Yes. And essentially what came out of that um, symposium was that once you have a person who has committed at least two separate murders, you are in the category of a serial murderer. Uh, of course, then you might have different motives. You might be the good old-fashioned Moses Atole who's motivated by power and control and sexual issues. But you could also include then in this definition the type that are motivated by pure payment, such as your hitman. Uh-huh. Um, okay, I wanted to come to that. I'll, I'll come to that. I'm going to ask you that question. Or, or your black widow who murder their husbands for subsequent, you know, subsequent husbands for the insurance payout. To the person who does it more for ideologically based, you know, um, killing people because you feel you don't like their religious views as a wild example. But yes, but the core criteria is two separate murders. You then are in the category of being a serial murder with the various different types of Motivation. subtypes underneath it. Okay. So there's a, a number. They also speak about a, a, a cooling off period. Mm. So is that part of the definition that there needs to be a period of time between the killings? Where they, well, they call it a cooling off, but it sounds to me more like they're just taking a breather mm. until they get to the next one. I don't know what you'd say to that. Yeah, so that, that's kind of what the, the, the question of the separate murders. The, the, the issue of cooling off, what does it mean? How do you define it? Became yes. one of the issues. So it's really two separate murders. Now, how separate do they have to be? You know, could you in the morning go out, rape and murder a, 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 a woman and then in that afternoon go do the same thing? Um, I would say yes, if there are two separate, you know, 
events, um, then yes, you would be a serial murderer. We've had Joseph and Chunguana in, in Durban who over the space of, uh, I think was it seven days killed four people. Okay. So, so yes, but if it was two people in the same, the same context, the same event, then we would say, no, not yet. Okay. Right. So if it takes place simultaneously. Yeah. Right. So, I, I mean, one of the other issues was that it needs to take place over a specified period of time and, 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 and there was talk about over a month, but in fact, what you're describing is less than yeah. that. It doesn't require that. So there might be certain definitions. Like I said, there's been some really out there definitions. Um, you know, some people saying you have to kill 10 people. Now, why you'd want to wait till you've got to the number of 10 when yes. most people don't kill anybody? Right. Um, and that's also why academics tended to prefer the increased number, you know, three, four, five, six. I don't know if they just want to make really certain. Yes. Uh, and, and law enforcement tends to focus on a, a fewer number because that allows them to take steps and get the necessary uh, balls in motion to, to get this thing dealt with sooner. And also the fact is that most people aren't killing anybody. So it's not as if your starting point is we all get one as a freebie. No, <laughs> most of us don't kill anybody. Right. So automatically, if you killed one person, you're in a very, very small percentage of society. Right. You go out and do a separate one thereafter, you're in an even smaller percentage. Well, I think – as you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself, well, if we label it after two, maybe we prevent three. Yeah. So I think it's very important to jump in earlier rather than late and say, well, now we've got seven. Hmm, I, yeah. think, I think we've got a problem. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. So just looking at it from a descriptive point of view, I mean, we're talking about systematic, ritualistic. I mean, do those kind of things, do those kind of descriptive terms come into how one would describe a, 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 a series of killings or a serial killer that it's systematic and it's ritualistic um, and that the the murderer is really looking at some kind of self-gratification. Mm. So those are the sort of, you know, so we've got systematic, ritualistic self-gratification. So, so we talk about it as being a psychologically motivated crime. And I mean, then you can debate what, what was that is exactly does that mean? Is the psychology not involved in every decision we make in, in life? Which, yes. yes. But if you look at the majority of the crimes that the police deal with, it's pretty much property related. There's some value in the, in the crime being committed. The hijacker does it because he's getting paid for okay. the vehicle. The housebreaker does it because he's, there's valuable items inside the house. So most crimes that the cops deal with have that kind of value associated to the crime. The crime is really the stepping stone. But when we look at things like spanning from your domestic violence to sexually violent crime to serial murder, it's as if the crime itself is the reward for the individual. Okay, so that's a big distinction. And that's when we talk about psychologically motivated. Now, that thing kind of leads into the next thing of, you know, if, if I – it, it is preplanned. I mean, serial murders, for example, they don't just spontaneously kill someone next to them. They know that day or the day before that this is probably what they're going to be doing very soon, and they go out and they look for the appropriate Just not victim. impulsive. Yeah, so not impulsive. Um, and, and because it's psychologically motivated, and often we say there's this underlying motive, fantasy, issue, grudge that you, that you have towards a category of individual. Um, therefore, when you do it the second and third and fourth time, there's going to be certain similarities. And that's often when people speak about, is it a ritualized crime? Um, but I have an issue, for example, as a serial murderer with, with adult females. Right. So I'm not good. Very rarely will I then have males, females, child, adult. You know, you do get some serial murders who have this wide spectrum of, of victimology, but typically they're going to be going after the same kind of victim. Okay. And what they want to do with their victim is going to be very similar. And again, context allows or doesn't allow them to do all of that. Um, and hence you get this issue of, is this a ritualized crime? 
most don't do very bizarre, unusual things, yes. you know, like mutilating the victims in a particular way and carving their name on the forehead of the victim. We don't, you have gotten those who've done really weird stuff. Right. But the stock standard serial murder, it's kind of goes out, lures the victim to a secluded place and then rapes and murders them. Right. And that's kind of what we see generally in, in South Africa with the odd outliers who've done weird stuff, who've had a very broad victimology. Um, but that is not the tip. Hollywood sees that as a typical, but that's not the typical. So, in other words, there's a victim profile. Yeah. And it's not personal necessarily. Uh, to what extent do serial killers tend to know their victims uh, as opposed to a lot of murders where there is a very definite personal uh, connection between the perpetrator and the victim? So, so a lot of them, most of the cases, it is, he's targeting a stranger. Um, purely because if you're suddenly killing people in your immediate environment, you suddenly become a point of interest for people to interview. You know, right. hmm, everybody that John knows is dying. Yes. So it's not a very effective long-term strategy. Um, so it's tended to be, I have an anger towards a category of people. So that category could be as broad as just, you know, adult females because I've always been treated badly by women or, you know, Moses Satole says he was falsely imprisoned for a rape that he didn't commit and he came out and then decided to get his revenge upon women. So, it's a category of people as opposed to I'm angry with you because of what you did to me yesterday or the day before or a, a month before. Yes. Um, having said that, we have had your outliers like Stuart Wilkin who killed his own daughter, his girlfriend's son. Then it was street children, sex workers. But in general, it's going to be the stranger that I approach and lure, lure away. We, of course, have seen more recently Rosemary and Lovu, who was that uh, police member from, from, I think, Tembiso, who – solely targeted family members and killed one personally, but the others she got different people to, to and, and I would definitely regard her as a serial murderer. She just, her instrument was using other people to commit the murder. Right. Um, and then she, of course, benefited financially. So I was sort of in the media when I was interviewed at those times, saying that we must see her as a serial murderer. She fits the definition. It's no different than if I plant a bomb under your car and the bomb dead, you know, in multiple victims' cars right. and they all die, or I sick my dog on you. Um, using a hitman is essentially just I'm using the hitman is my instrument. The hitman is my weapon. Yes. Um, to commit that, uh, th that person wouldn't have killed those people uh, if it wasn't for, for me, right. in, in, instigating that. So that's why I, you know, quite liberally said that she she is definitely a serial murderer in my eyes. I'm going to come back to that when I speak about Charles Manson briefly. But what you're saying, or what I'm understanding, is there's research that goes into the crime. Because you have to research your victim. You have to know who you're dealing with and what you want, that they fit the criteria that you're looking for, which then suggests to me that the person who's engaged in this kind of killing um, systematically works out it's you um, or, or not. In, not in the sense of they go and they search online and they follow people for days and check out if they're exact. Because the criteria could just be you're an, you're an adult black female, for example, right. Satole. That's what his victimology was. Right. So on the day when he has that urge, he'll go out in his hunting ground or comfort zone, as we as we refer to it, and whoever just kind of matches his interest um, in that general broad category, he will approach. And he might approach 20 people before somebody says, yes, I'll come with you for a job. Okay. But it's not this sort of stalking for days on end, finding out a bit more information about you. You just have to fit that basic category of, I don't like adult females, therefore you're an adult female. I'm in the mood for this crime, you and you're agreeing to go with me. That's kind of the combination of the perfect storm. So to some extent, it is opportunistic. 
opportunistic on the day when he sets out, right. but he knows what he's looking for. He knows what he's going to do. He knows where he's going to take them. But you as the victim, unfortunately, just happened to be in that comfort zone or spider web at the time when I set out to go and commit this crime. I'm thinking about where it all starts mm. and how one murder maybe unleashes the need for the next, almost like an addict. I'd never thought of that while I was preparing for the program or the episode. But as you're talking, I'm thinking, is there an addictive quality to murder within the serial killer's makeup? Well, definitely if it gives him to some degree what he wants, which, again, you argue, why would you do it again if it's not didn't satisfy you in the way you, that, that you thought it would? Um, so it's like anything. If you get a positive response, it's behaviorism, you're going to do it again. You know, um, So – what we do see, though, is these ideas or thoughts have been around for quite a long time before they set out and actually kill someone. Right. And it might be first exhibited in what we call trial runs. So in my first book, I write about Jose de Silva, who was a serial murderer, in my opinion, who was arrested after his first murder. Okay. And he had first, for example, he was going out and meeting with estate agents, pretending to be a different person, saying he wants to spend millions on a house. And he just enjoyed this positive attention that he would get only from female. He only targeted female okay. state agents. And they would be yes, sir, no, sir, thinking that this is going to be a high-spending client. And he, and he kind of just liked this positive attention from females. And then with time, he moved over into an interior decorator. And he invited back to his house now. Okay. Um, and so that's a bit of a change. So it's a progression. Yeah, brought her in, and she he didn't kill her, and we were able to track her down. But she did say, you know, in the bathroom, she felt very uncomfortable because she saw it was a hammer or an axe, I, can't, I think a hammer, on the basin of the ensuite bathroom. And he'd made certain comments that weren't, you know, he commented on her toe ring and just stuff that she thought, this is a bit inappropriate, and I'm going yes. to sort of cu- cut this consultation short. And the next interior decorator he brought in, he murdered in that bathroom with a hammer. So okay. that was him progressively moving closer and closer to – Testing out his perhaps his psychological ability to go to the next step, uh, or maybe little bits. Then he doesn't get that satisfaction anymore, and then he pushes it a bit further, and then he kind of fits falls into the murders, which will be the so the mainstay of his behaviour from then on forward. So, but this is obviously only what you can work out retrospectively, mm. because I was thinking in terms of early signs. Mm. How do we, in a way, predict? Whether a specific crime is a harbinger of something mm. more significant, which is going to escalate to what we're talking about, that that's very difficult, and I don't know if we can. Um, you know, so many people. There are a lot of people who do murder, and they don't murder again. Um, you know, I think sex crimes are almost by definition going to be serial in nature. A pedophile doesn't molest one child. Right. A child pornography person doesn't just download, download one image. So I think anything when it comes to sexual crimes. Almost by definition, they're going to be repetitive. Yes. Uh, and not all those people are going to go in becoming serial rapists and serial murderers. So how do we identify the ones that are likely to? I don't know if we can. You know, there's not this nice classical thing of they all torture animals when they're young. They're all setting fire to things, you know, that old-fashioned McDonald triad, which people used right. to throw around liberally. I don't – we don't see any clear consistency in the backgrounds. We have those that grew up in very normal households. Their brother's not murdering anybody. They are – they were treated decently. Then you have other ones that were treated horribly as kids like Stuart Wilkin alleged to have very kind of abusive um, disconnect with family members, backgrounds, you know, horrific background by all accounts. Uh, and he became a serial murderer. So there's nothing that I've really been able to see that would allow us to go, okay, this person is on a pathway to something very, very bad. So in other words, what we're really talking about when we 
as I'm understanding it, when we start to profile, we're talking about an individual-specific profiling as opposed to saying, well, in general, mm. this is the profile that you would would say, mm, we've got a potential problem here. Would that be… Yeah, um, I think that's a, that's a pretty good way to say it. I mean, we can't even definitely, with definity say that they're all psychopaths because they don't all match those criteria, whether psychopath or antisocial, whichever option you want to, want to use. You know, a lot of them are just, in every other aspect of their lives, very law-abiding. And I think that's the scary part. Mm. Um, I'm always thinking when you get the next-door neighbor interview, they say, no, he was a quiet man. Mm. You know, and it's the person that you necessarily least suspect mm. who is capable of committing heinous crimes and is living in every other circumstance as a law-abiding citizen within a community. Yep. I mean, how often does that – I mean, maybe that's my fantasy of, of, of how it works, but I, I think to some extent that may well be true. Yeah. I mean, people are always surprised when we arrested person X and they still, you know, don't want to believe that it's him, although we've got DNA and he's confessed to it and we found the victim's items in his possession. And you still get people who say, I can't believe it's him. The police have, you know, framed this guy, etc. Um, that's almost quite consistently what we get from people. They'll say he's a great employee. He was a, you know, he was a fine partner, romantic partner, a good neighbor and that's what makes it so scary is it literally could if it, it would be easy if this person was living a criminal lifestyle, yes. you know, robbing, stealing, cheating, lying, not a nice person, getting into fights. That would be easy. We could stay away from those people. Right. But these, and there are people like that out, out in society, but serial murderers don't tend to be that kind of a person. Which I think makes it really scary mm. because the truth of the matter is, I mean, I'm going back to the example you gave of the interior designer who went to the house. And she said, mm, some of these questions are inappropriate and some of the observations. Mm. And she was a lucky one mm. because all the tools were there and yep. he was just kind of testing the scenario. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, for me, chilling, actually. I'm not quite, I wonder psychologically, because we're speaking about the psychology of serial killers and I obviously want to get to, to families. But in this particular instance, I'm curious, how did she – experience, I'm going to call it a near-death experience. We're all mm -hmm. about near-death experiences. I mean, she had one. In interviewing her, I'm just curious, what was her take on what had actually happened when she saw, oh, my word, this is the guy? So I, I didn't interview her. So right. the, the police during the interview, when they managed to track down a, the, the cell phone and the numbers are being used and they identified this lady and they contacted her, and it was literally that night she was traveling back from Durban and she pointed out the house and they arrested him. So from the police's point of view, you know, all they were looking for is, can you help us identify this guy? Once you've done that, the, the questions that you and I ask as mental health experts were the ones like, you know, but what was it like? You know, how was he? Which for the cops, that wasn't at all their focus. And even when, when we would be involved in the, in, in the, um, arrests of these individuals at that point, we're trying to get a confession. Mm. Um, if you have the time thereafter, you want to go into these deep psychological discussions, which we did sometimes have the opportunity to, to do. Once the guy had done his confession and he's conclusively linked, we would then perhaps go into those kind of interviews that we as mental health experts want to know. But typically with, you know, your witnesses, you're just trying to get, can you give us information that leads to a person, etc. So, yeah, I'm interesting to ask afterwards what she… Well, certainly one thing I would say, she's got tremendous gut instinct. Mm. And I think that that is something which we should not lose sight of. I mean, I mean we talk about it kind of mm. in a loose sense, but certainly her experience of the situation was, mm, there's something not right here. I need mm. to get the hell out of here. And there's, a, there's an interesting book written by Gavin De Becker, who right. was in the world of threat assessment. He was one of the sort of early guys who started to kind of be, 
look at this whole concept more professionally. He wrote a book called The Gift of Fear, which oh. you can get actually, I think, in quite a few shops locally. Okay. And it's about how over the uh, – with society and norms and how we are taught to behave, we tend to ignore our internal gut feeling, which is, I suppose, your most basic instincts telling you, be careful. But yes. And he would say how you, you a lift would open and there would be a dodgy guy in the lift, but the woman would feel, oh, I don't want to step back and not get in because that might be rude. Yes. You know, I don't want to be seen as judging a person based on their looks, but that is your internal instincts. And you should, it should, should rather just rather risk him thinking you looking at him or treating him funny and not get into the lift. And then something does happen and how we've almost taught ourselves to override that internal instinct. So very interesting book. Is that exactly what he, what he deals with? Yeah. And I think it's a very interesting issue. This, this, this issue of social etiquette mm. versus mm, I'm not so sure about the situation. How do I extricate myself without being offensive? Yeah. And then ultimately one should be saying, if I offend you, if Sorry. it means me potentially being safe, that's worth the trade-off. You know? Correct. So how much – and I'm going to look at a couple of issues might contribute towards the psychology of the serial killer in your um, professional experience. And I'm going to ask you a little bit more about your involvement with uh, um, profiling. Anger? Um. We say definitely, typically what we see in South Africa it's, is, is this anger towards a group, a category of people, a group of people, which again, that anger very often would develop from something that's happened to them. Like I said, Satole was angry because he felt his mother abandoned him and then later on he dated women, they treated him badly and then the one that falsely accused him of rape. So he just seemed to have built up this anger towards women as a class of people, that right. any woman, no matter who you are, I don't even have to know you, you're bad. Right. Therefore, justified in my anger that I want to do and revenge I want to take about against a class of women, class of people, women, yes. and that individual represents that I'm targeting today that I've chosen to represents that class of people. What about inadequacy? Because obviously murdering someone on your terms sounds or seems to me like one of the ultimate uh, expressions of control mm. and power. So where does inadequacy fit into that? So definitely, I mean, power and control are seen as one of the very common motives in, in, in serial murderers, the control over someone's life. And again, I mean, Satole is a good example. He, he literally had mechanisms for strangling people, which would allow him to bring them on the verge of, of, you know, of, of passing out and then dying and then undoing the mechanism so they would revive and then tightening it again. And that would go on for sometimes hours. So it is very much him playing God, so to speak. It's perverse. Um, over that individual and, and the satisfaction he would get. Knowing he's going to kill this person in the end anyway, but that control, it's literally the, the most extreme form of control you have is over the life or death of, a, of another individual. So do you find or did you find in your experience that torture was – because that sounds like mm. torture to me. Mm. I mean I'm really torturing you. So there weren't a lot that did that. I mean I must say this. I, I ref, refer to Satole, but he was probably one of the few that we really saw this almost sadistic kind of mm. torture behavior. Um you know, you know, Stuart Wilkin from Port Elizabeth, you know, he did enjoy that the fact that his victims were experiencing pain and suffering and, you know, calling out to God to help them. But he had a big anger issue towards God that he says abandoned him as a child and that he went through all these horrible things. So he's going to get his revenge upon God by doing this to God's creations. And uh, he would enjoy it when they would call out and beg to God for for help. And he knew that he was he was the one then in, in control. So there weren't a lot that were doing that. They were all, I suppose you can say, anytime you rape and murder someone, is that not a sadistic kind of concept? Absolutely. But not that were actively sadistic and then, de in other words, delaying that process because he was toying with them. Correct. Like a cat. Yeah. With a mouse. Yeah. So a there sense. weren't a lot of, of those. But something you've mentioned now, which, which brings to mind the issue of justification. Mm. It seems to me that they felt, 
either morally or intellectually justified in terms of what they were doing. Did mm. you did you encounter that? Yeah, and I mean it's it's again there's sort of cognitive distortions that you know all people now deserve this, therefore it's okay for me to do it, and I'm justified in what I'm doing. So yeah. I mean, those that we see in, 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 in a lot of people when they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, whether it's speeding or cheating on their partner, they usually have some kind of twisted justification for what they're doing. And serial murderers are, are no different. They feel that they are justified. And, of course, the ones that, that the odd here and there that are very psychopathic, they just really don't care they, <laughs> about having to justify it. So to some extent, and I'm going to use the phrase that we often used to do to characterize psychosis, and I'm not saying they're psychotic, but they are to some extent out of touch with reality in terms of their thinking, mm. their cognitive processes, their rationalization is completely divorced from how it actually is in the mm. real world. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different to, to I like to think, you and I. <laughs> oh, well, I hope so. Um, when it comes to how they justify what the extreme things that they can do. So, I mean, that's always the question. Are these people crazy? And I said, well, yes. no, they're not crazy in, in, in the sort of medical sense. They're, they're different to, to everybody else. We don't know what is that difference, right. you know, what makes them different, but it's not very rarely do we have psych psychosis, you know, hearing right. of voices. Um, there have been odd cases where that has happened. Um, but they're, they're, they're not legally insane, but they're very different to us. Well, I think for me the, the key criterion would be is there a diagnosable mental illness mm. that could account for what they did? Mm. I'm a schizophrenic. I'm suffering from delusions. I'm a paranoid. Mm. Individual, I've got a paranoid delusion. I think Gerard actually wants to mm. poison me, so I better get him first. Yeah. And I'm operating under that delusion. Mm. Then I would say, okay, so this person would have committed an act within the context of a mental illness. Mm. So I think what's very difficult for people is to contemplate that somebody can behave in such a monstrous mm. way and not be mentally ill. Yeah, there's got to be something wrong with them. So yes, I just, do we know what it is? No. Um, and again, coming back to mental illness, you know, we've had only one that was ever found unfit to stand trial. That was Francois Portreter from, I think, Potterstrom many years ago before I joined the police, who very in the early days of serial murder was he murdered a number of sex workers, if I recall correctly, and they found him unfit due to schizophrenia. I, I almost kind of wonder that it was such the early days of modern serial murder that it was that just not this assumption there must be something wrong with you if you do this. I see what you're saying. Versus now where we've been through, you know, we've had hundreds of serial murders in South Africa and all of them pretty much get sent for, for 30 day observation and are found fit to stand trial. Right. You know, we've even had one, Joseph and Shongwana, um, who I think he's also in my first book, who had a long standing diagnostics, uh, history of diagnosis of, uh, schizoaffective. Okay. Um, multiple admissions prior to the murders. Prior to the murders. Yeah. Okay. And but was found that his murders were not stemming, as you right. stemming from his mental illness. And there was a huge debate. It dragged out this case for like two years. Uh, you know, you know, state psychiatrists testifying, yes. private psychiatrists testifying, me testifying. Pre-trial, we dealt with the issue. Then it was raised again during the trial. So it dragged out the whole issue. And ultimately, the court said that the way in which he committed this is not indicative of, of someone who's mentally ill. He hid his crime, etc. Yeah. His paranoid delusions that he did have were about his mother poisoning him. Right. But he didn't target his mother. He targeted right. random stranger men out yes. in the streets. So big debate, and I think it was a good debate to have at the, in the context of the trial. So he did have that diagnosis, but it was found not to be the cause of his serial murder behavior. And he's sitting in prison as opposed to a psychiatric hospital. Which I think is very important, and that's where the forensic mm. process is, 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 is so critical, mm. is to say, well, just because you have a mental illness, did you commit the crime on the basis of that mental yeah. illness? If not, 
you knew what you were doing and you will be held responsible and therefore you will be diverted into the criminal justice system as opposed to into yeah. the therapeutic system. So I think that's a very important but Otherwise it becomes a get out of jail free card. You know, I'm a schizophrenic, so if I walk out the shop with a chocolate, you know, it's, it's, yes. but I say, well, if you brush your teeth, are you schizophrenically brushing your teeth? No. No, exactly. <laughs> so again, the law actually says there must be a nexus. That's the word they use, a nexus between the criminal act and the mental health. And if there isn't that nexus, then you will go to jail. When you say nexus? A nexus means, like you said, that something that the from connection. the mental health problems caused you or greatly contributed to that act. Like yeah. you said, the good example of paranoid hearing voices, the voices say, stab Gerard because he is out to get you. And right. I, I react to that. Yes. That's a clear nexus between Absolutely. the criminal act and the mental illness. And so I think that's – it's important because, in fact, most serial killers – are not found to be mentally ill. Mm. And I think that's the conceptual dif- difficulty that, that people have. So therefore they constitute a different kind of person. Mm. They're not normal <laughs> because they're doing things that are not normal, mm. but they're not mentally ill. So where do they fit in? So that's where the do question. they fit in? And I, I think a lot of the time we come back to antisocial personality disorder. And there's a good question often asked within psychiatric circles. Does it belong? Actually, in the DSM-5, is, is, is because what are you going to do with antisocial personality mm. disorder? It's a difficult one, mm. but it certainly isn't a get-out-of-jail card. So yeah. even though you've got a diagnosable condition, yeah. it doesn't absolve Affect you. that issue. Yeah. Exactly. And determine right from wrong and act in accordance. Correct. But, and, and I ultimately well, can s- they determine right from wrong? I mean, do they know they're well, doing wrong if they're satisfying a need? I would think that they, they know it's wrong in the sense of society says I shouldn't be doing this, okay. um, which is how they often try and do it not in front of a million other people and get arrested. They do it, you know, in a way that they can get away with it. So I think, yes, with your purely psychopathic person just doesn't care about the society's laws, but he knows yes. I shouldn't be doing this because the law and society says I shouldn't. And that's reflected in how he gets away with it. And I was about to say, so, so how he will plan, organize yeah. so that he can move on to the next one to yeah. cover his tracks. He just doesn't care about the fact that society says it's wrong. You know, you're, you're purely sort of, you know, extreme sort of psychopathic person. Right. So he knows it's wrong, just we don't care. No conscience, mm. no empathy. And I think for me, I, in a way, I kind of long just gave up on trying to figure out why they do it and what's wrong with them and just how do we catch them quicker. But ultimately, when we look at the risk they face, yes. you know, understanding what risk they've posed to society very rarely is answered by a diagnosis. I mean, you can have people who are psychopaths who are not going to harm someone. They'll rob and steal and commit fraud and, you know, and steal your pension money, but they're not going to physically harm someone. Or be abusive in relationships. So, so as we, when we do a risk assessment anyway, you know, we look at a whole bunch of factors of which mental health and personality is one of 20, 30 risk factors we're looking at. You know, you don't have to have or have not have a diagnosis to know that a serial killer should probably never be released back into society. Right. Um, because we just don't know why they do it. We don't know how to fix them. And the risks are just too great to send this person back. I mean, they are typically good people outside of their serial murder behavior. Um, they're typically model prisons in the model prisoners. Yes. Um, but that's not a good benchmark for when they're back out in society having to deal with the, chal- the life challenges and stresses. Uh, my fear is correctional services will release them because they have, to, they just do disastrous things when it comes to parole. But, um, you know, you, my default setting is we shouldn't be releasing these people back into society. The risk to society, we're giving him a second chance yes. at life, but a victim a first chance at death. Yeah, and I think that what you're saying here is that good behavior in prison is no indicator of what you're going to do when you get back into society. Yeah. And you're subject to all of the stressors or environment that kind of 
promoted and produced that kind of behavior. And you're also not really interacting with females, which is typically the victims, except for the odd warden who is you. a female warden. So, but you're not dating them. You're, you're having, <laughs> they have a power over you, but you're back in society relating to these people that you have an issue with. But um, I think this is a very important concept, which is the one of the use of good behavior in prison to shorten the sentence mm. or to in any way indicate rehabilitation within the context, let's say, of a serial killer. Mm. It's, it should be consideration number 50, to if, be honest you. If at all, because I think your, 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 your history tells you what's going to happen yeah. if put back into the situation where everything is available again. And also if you look at it, when a judge or magistrate gives their sentence, they're looking at things like deterrence right. for you not to do it again, but also other people in society, uh, retribution or punish, you know, the punishment side, the offender and their possibility for, for rehabilitation. The judge looks at a whole bunch of factors when they say, I'm going to give you 15, 20 years, a life sentence. But what seems to happen is the parole boards seem to just look at how well behaved have you been. And I often said that the fact that you might even be rehabilitated doesn't mean you've finished being punished. Right. And that's what they totally don't take into account. So you might have done something very heinous. You might, as I said, even be rehabilitated, but you know, society might still expect that you should be punished for longer for what you've done. And if you let a guy out after five years for a very heinous crime, what does that say to other people who might be considering that crime? It's like, wow, worst case scenario, five years, almost worth it. <laughs> well, Moving into a different area. Do you think Hollywood glamorizes mm. serial killers? Absolutely. I mean, otherwise, it's not entertaining. <laughs> if they come across as bland and boring, which, to be honest with you, most of them are that I've ever well, met. Well, I think that's what I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to ask you. I mean, what's the distinction between what you see on screen and what you've experienced in, 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 in reality? You know, to be honest with you, the majority of them are so average IQ, not particularly So they're not evil people. geniuses? No, not the evil genius. Um no, I mean, they get away with it often purely because of bad policing, not because they're smart. Yes, and I think that that's, uh, that's an issue. So would you say that a serial killer is born or made? I'd be more inclined to say that you probably have something in you when you're born. Right. Um, which can be slowed down or accelerated by your, the context under which you grow up and your experiences in life. Right. So there's a path that you can walk that doesn't take you in that direction. Even though you have an inclination. Mm. Or might delay it perhaps uh, longer than another person who okay. has the inclination who grew up in sort of bad circumstances. Right. Because this is now bringing me to the issue in my own mind of, 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 of prediction, which I think is impossible, mm. actually. But there's a very definite gender ratio mm. where many more men than women, not that women don't become serial killers, and I, I'm going to mention a few, but the truth is there is that gender ratio. Why do you think that is? Well, look, I mean, most violent crime is men. Who are committing it. Okay. So I think firstly that's a the violence is kind of a man thing in general. Right. Um so yeah, I think what automatically means would definitely find less female serial murderers. You know, in South Africa definitely as I said, Rosemary and Lovo, the, the lady who killed all of her family members for insurance, mm-hmm. I classify as a serial. But who else were we really had in South Africa? You know, uh Charmaine Phillips and Peter Hrunden in the eighties were a couple that moved around over three weeks. Okay, so that's an interesting point. Killing people. Wanted- to, to raise in terms of female serial killers, they often link with a male. Yeah. And I mean, there was a very famous case in, 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 in the UK, Myra Hindley, Ian Brady, the Moors murders where they murdered oh, a serial Rosemary West. Yes, uh, that's right. Exactly. Both in the UK, by the way. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure it speaks about <laughs> what goes on in the United Kingdom. But certainly when I looked into female serial killers, they seemed, and 
I'm not a profiler, but it was much more personal. They seemed to run boarding houses or be in the nursing profession. There was definite financial gain. It seemed to be people mm. who were closely connected, husbands, children, mm. um, older people. They tended to use poison, mm. and they often had a partner in crime. So, I mean, I don't know. That's my profiling of female serial killers. Yeah, and I think it's, it's pretty sad. In South Africa, we haven't really had any – well, you can also say perhaps we haven't caught them because they're smarter and, and okay. getting away with it right. better. I mean, I do think if you're using poison in South Africa, but our police – I don't know um, – I don't know nowadays. Difficult, yes. Uh, you know, the police investigation skills are not are not so great. So, so maybe women are smarter and doing it in ways that are less, or doing it in ways that are it makes it easier for them to get away. Right. Um, like I said, you pointed out correctly. You know, physically stabbing and killing is not often. You know, you have power differentials, etc. Physical power is not typically the the, the 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 female way. So, as it maybe that's just the way they do it, makes it less likely for us to catch them. That's one possibility. But I do just think violent crime in general is overwhelming majority men. I did come across a female serial killer who was a wrestler who used to strangle her victims. Mm. And she had a psychological issue with older women because she'd been abandoned by her mother. And so she murdered older women. Mm. She would get into their apartments and then strangle them. So, you know. And, and with men, it seems more impersonal and there's cannibalism. So we've had a couple of cannibalism cases here in South Africa. It's definitely not the norm. So uh, Stuart Wilkin that I've mentioned a few times already with one of his victims. I mean, he had, sure, uh, we've seen suspected quite a few victims, but I think he was eventually convicted on seven or 11 victims. But only one of them did he engage in cannibalism at the scene with the victim. What is that? It was the same victim where he, so his method of killing was typically strangulation, ligature or manual strangulation. Right. But in that particular victim, he also... Stabbed her in the stomach after he killed her. So I just kind of got the feeling with that victim, he was just doing a bit of experimenting and exploring. Uh huh. You know, I'm going to stab to see what it feels like for the knife to go into to human skin, uh, and I'm going to then cut off parts of the body and eat them because I want to see what they taste like. Did he use that subsequently? No. So there were there were murders after, there were murders before. None of them did he use a knife, and none of them did he engage in cannibalism. And I think it was just a kind of like hmm, I, I wonder, and let me try. So. Do you think that this fascination fuels the behavior? I mean, knowing that people are going to be interested. I mean, is there a kind of a spectacle to the behavior that actually promotes the behavior? While the person, the person who is the serial yes, murderer. The, the serial murderer. You know, there's always that concern that they are going to enjoy, or we always say that a serial murderer will be watching the media. About to see if their crime has been picked up, what's going on, what's been said. Right. It's a source of intelligence. And unfortunately, newspapers often put stuff that cops wish they wouldn't yes. into the public media. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to learn. So Stuart Wilkin in, in, the, in the 70s, he, for example, would go and watch the police at the crime scene amongst the crowd right. just to learn and see what else they're doing to improve and to him to ability to so get he's away refining with it. his technique based Finding on observation. Technique. Um, and of course, maybe there might have been the satisfaction. I am the guy and I'm standing around here and nobody knows it, yes. possibly. So we're always concerned, A, that they're going to watch what's in the media. But, and the second concern is, do they thrive on what's in the media? You know, so Satole was interacting with journalists, you know, in the time before he got caught. What I have often seen, though, um, is that once they are arrested, and they start to appear in court or the trial starts, it's almost as they live up to this image. Right. Now, whether that's practical, because I think if I was in prison, I would definitely want to be known as a real dangerous guy because for <laughs> obvious reasons. it might protect me in prison yes. from people trying stuff with me. Um, or is it just, again, this? they do like this image? Um, so 
this quarry serial murderer also discussed in the first book. He was very meek and mild, kind of a bit of a pathetic guy when we got him. But when we start his trial, he sort of dressed nicely. Mm. You know, the other one we arrest, the highwayman, suddenly comes to court in this fake leather jacket like Neo from the Matrix movies. Right. Sunglasses. And I'm like, well, this is a bit of a transformation. Right. Um, we had Jack Mohale, the Western era serial murderer, who in, in court was rude and would swear at the judge, swear at the family members, you know, wore a balaclava and sunglasses, and the judge tells him to take it off, and he doesn't, you know. Is that, again, him trying to just get this attention and notoriety on top of it all? I mean, that, there's a possibility. So then it does come back to what I mentioned earlier around inadequacy mm. and suddenly I'm a star. In a, yeah, in the sense of, you know, getting the sense of satisfaction that you can't get in your real life, you're getting, hopefully, from your crimes. Vicariously through And thereafter, crimes. you know, and, yes. and, and, and um, um, the, the quarry serial murder, um, Richard Neuza, I mean, as we finished, I testified and he'd been convicted. And he sort of shakes my hand and says, you know, would I come see him in prison and help him write his book? Wow. You know, which, of course, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> not that he could profit from any book he wrote uh, yes. about his crimes, but, you know. So, so what about Hitman? Because I go back to… One of my favorite movie characters, which comes from the book by Cormac McCarthy, No Country for Old Men, mm. uh, Anton Chigurh, yeah. the coin flip and the yeah. uh, stun gun yes. for cattle. I mean, he's a hitman, right? Yep. He's a serial killer. Yep. So hitmen are serial killers, but are they um, serial killers instinctively or it's just a job? I mean, what's the differentiation between what we're talking mm. about and hitmen? So, yeah, so again, to, you know, when I started out in this line of work in 2001, I would have said, no, those guys are not serial murderers because I was so used to seeing the rape and murder serial murderers. Yes. But that doesn't mean because somebody's a bit different, they are no longer. And I explained that in court when I call someone who's a serial murderer who doesn't fit our typical image. I would typically say to the judge or magistrate or judge because he's typically in the high court that if we look at our definition of murder, it's the unlawful intentional killing of another person. Right. That's the definition. That's the criteria. If you meet that, you're going to be charged with murder. But who is the typical murderer in South Africa and who is the typical victim? So because of our population dynamics, the overwhelming majority of, all, of murderers will be black males. Right. And the typical victim would be a black male. That doesn't mean if you get a 90-year-old Chinese lady who murders a, a one-year-old Indian baby, yes. it's no longer murder because it doesn't fit what we typically see. And that's how I argue to say that we have our criteria and then we have the t- typical features. And don't mix up the two. Right. So the fact that the majority of our serial murders are black males doesn't mean that if it's it's now suddenly a white guy doing it, it's no longer serial murder because it doesn't fit our picture. So that's what I often, again, first you have a challenge to convey in court that it doesn't, just because it doesn't match our typical understanding doesn't mean it doesn't meet the base criteria. Yes. So in that sense, like I said, yes, have you killed more than one, two separate people, or two people on at least two separate occasions? Right. You'd meet the criteria. So yes, the serial murder, serial, the hitman, hitman would fit into it, but their motive is going to be different. Primarily the financial benefits because they're in, instructed to go and kill person A, B, and C. They don't choose the victim. Right. There's not that perhaps a bit of a personal motive right. behind them, but do they enjoy their job? Have we found someone who inherently would have become a serial murderer, but had they not become a hitman? Has found a way to manage their passion with their occupation like we typically all of us do. You say if you, if you marriage, you'll marry your occupation with your passion, it's not really a job. Right. So is that a case of a guy That's who just goes, well, I can make a living out of this? Uh, would they perhaps have gone into the military and become soldiers where they go into combat zones and get the satisfaction? Which is also why I often say we – I personally say we should rather talk, differentiate between a serial murderer mm-hmm. and a serial killer. Right. So okay. people in the military, like if you were fighting in Ukraine with the military – You're a serial killer. You have killed serially, right. 
It's not illegal. And, but murder is always an illegal act because it says the definition is an unlawful, intentional killing of another person. There's no legal justification. But a policeman in, in the line of duty might, over his career, if he's unfortunate, have to have shot and killed. But a hitman is committing murder. Correct. So therefore he's a serial murderer. Murderer, murderer. Yes. That's a small little legal caveat no, no, that I often I, talk about why I typically try and force myself to speak about serial murder. Yes. But um, I think it's an interesting conceptual issue. Yeah. What about the people who form Relationships with serial killers. What I mean, what about their psychology? Yeah. So of course we've had those that didn't know they're dating a serial murderer, oh. and we can't blame. But then them. there are those who are in prison, and then the women are interested in yeah. them as. I mean that, and I've just encountered that so many times. Oh, I you mean, have. We, not not only in serial murder cases. I mean, I have a guy who's starting his trial next, hopefully next week. Yes. Um, and he, long story short, Gerard Janssen van Vieren. Typical domestic violence abuse history towards all his girlfriends, and he ends up killing Andrea Fenter in about – literally, I think, about 10 years ago. And um, he gets bail eventually, and he starts dating another lady pending his trial. And he brutally you know, stabbed Andrea, I think, 14 times, cut her throat. He then tried to commit suicide, but he survives. Okay. So he's, he gets bail, and he starts dating another lady. He gives her a false name. But at one point, she – Gets hold of his driver's license. She says, but he's not Gerard Smith. He's Gerard Janssen van Furen. She Googles him. She finds out who he is and what he's standing trial for. And she continues to date him. Incredible. And I could never understand how you just get some people who will be dating someone who's awaiting trial for murder. Or afterwards, they hear about them and they become pen pals and start dating um, I mean, Fadi Barnard was another one who then, I think it was, I think she was actually a psychologist. I don't think she wow. was, she wasn't treating him as far as I recall. Yes. But she ends up, you know, meeting and contacting him in prison and marrying him while he's in prison. I don't think they had any contact prior to that. Why people do that, I don't know. All the okay. fish in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you, you choose that? Choose one? a bit better, perhaps, you know. <laughs> so we focused on the killers and I want to just touch on the victims and I suppose mm-hmm. that could be a whole episode in itself. But I mean, obviously, when I was preparing for this, I, I hadn't factored in that we'd have our current Limpopo serial killer here in South Africa, who has murdered seven women, he kidnaps them, promise of employment, mm. murders them. But I was I was reading in in News 24, the, the comment of the aunt of one of the victims, and she was talking about revulsion every time she sees him and mm. not fully understanding his motive, and then, of course, the prolongation of the trial due mm. to postponements, which is just really keeping wounds open. I mean, to what extent do the family of victims ever get closure? What is, you know, what is their psychology? You know, I don't think any family member gets final closure. I think a conviction and a sentence is a stepping stone um, that I do think can make family members feel a bit sort of a bit better. But as we saw with the Lee Matthews family, uh, you know, Donovan Moodley launched over the years after his conviction multiple attempts to try and get out of what he did. You know, first yes. in the sentence, then the conviction, then both, then this, then that, and then saying it's other people that did it. And actually, he was not part of it. And, you know, that, that just pro- prolonged the Matthews family pain and suffering. Absolutely. And then last year when they had the parole hearing, I was involved in that. Okay. And I attended the parole hearing. He comes up with a, another story, you know, where he says, actually, yes, we said to him, but what about you've been trying to get out of it for the past five, ten years with all these multiple versions you've put to the court where it wasn't you at all, then you were forced into it, then it was you. You know, and now today we're sitting here. No, he accepts responsibility for all those other versions. What, what does that mean? Because you just sort of – that doesn't make – Wash those away, but you've put that family through hell. hell, and now you're back to, yes, it was me, because you know the parole board won't give you parole if you say it wasn't you. 
But there's still so many unanswered questions. And even the version of what happened when he explained the crime still doesn't match the facts. Yes. So they just have this prolonged and ongoing you know, pain and suffering. There's never really closure for them. And he will now have parole hearings every two years. Um, so I think it is a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long process, as we see in some instances. Andrea Fenter, as I said, Gerard Janssen von Vieren murdered Andrea Fenter in 2011, fled to Brazil, and is now only going to be on trial. Um, so I think it is a, a step in the process of closure, but I don't think it's the only one. And there's still that whole other issue of, you know, will he get parole one day? Yes. And, and what about that that, you know, uh, unfortunately lingers over families, over his family's heads? And I think that's why I wanted to put the, the victim and the families of the victims in the spotlight because mm. we tend to focus on the more sensational aspects of the serial killing. Uh, obviously, the Moodley situation is not a serial killing, mm. but uh, the truth of the matter is we have trauma. Mm. Emotional trauma in terms of the families. I just want to, yes. And, and so one of the sad things is, you know, we did a study uh, with John Jay College of Criminal Justice many years ago on South African serial murder cases. Right. And um, 18% of the victims are never identified. So we also have a whole bunch of families that never know what happened to their loved wow. ones. We get convictions on the cases. He's serving time for that. But we don't know who the victim is. And the families obviously don't know what happened to them. So tell me, Gerard, I mean, how do, I mean, you're working in this milieu. How does it affect you personally, or is it just a technical job? Um, I, th- yeah, I mean, obviously it was a very stressful job. Um, and the, the sort of insidious thing is that you don't realize that your, st- your baseline of stress is increasing. Yes. So you don't notice that you're, you're, you're permanently on, say, 10 times more than the average person's stress level, except when something makes you angry and you, you snap very quickly right. and get, you know, start swearing so, and throwing I mean, things around. So you do feel, without necessarily consciously connecting but you can say to yourself the job's having an impact mm, mm. and i think i really realized that only once i'd left the job right. what the true sort of level of impact because you just it becomes the norm you know i've never i never used to have nightmares about cases i worked on i never wanted to you know kill a serial killer for what he's done i yes. think there was always the ability to have this clinical fascination i mean right. that you you have the opportunity to interview someone who is just so unusual in the average sense in the sense of the word of the average person um, and well, how does it feel to sit opposite a serial killer, knowing exactly what you know about them, interviewing them? I mean, were you ever involved in that kind of process? Oh, I interviewed countless serial killers. Exactly. Murders, you know. So, I mean, I always saw it as a good, as a really amazing research opportunity, and I think that's perhaps part of the saving grace. If right. you if you don't have the ability to see this, and like you see patients, right. I mean, you must see and hear the most fascinating things and horrible things that have happened to people. Right. For me, it was always, I'm almost in a way lucky to be able to hear this from the horse's mouth, literally. Right. Um, to ask the questions I've always wanted to ask, to try and explore more, to understand better, that we can feed that back into our investigations. So, and for me, the, the greatest opportunity was if I was able to video record an amazing interview and right. use that later for training. And some of these videos I still used until today for training purposes. So I think if you have this sort of research clinical mindset, yes. it does create that buffer that all mental health people kind of have to have when yes. you're dealing with people. But yet there's an insidious process that is taking place underneath the – I wouldn't call it veneer, but underneath the layer that is more research clinically orientated – at a personal level, it kind of gets to you and you appreciate it when you leave and you say, okay, wow, I'm in a different milieu now mm. and I feel differently. And I, th- I think one of the biggest problems that contributed to the stress was the, the, the never-endingness of there's, there's always too much work. You can't get to it. 
there's more coming in. It, it's, you never have it ending. You're always busy with cases that are in the investigation phase, in the court phase, in the arrest phase, and there's just more and more and more and more work coming in. And I think that was very stressful to deal with. That and you're under pressure you know, because you know that there's yeah. a serial killer out there. Yeah, and I mean, then I'd be sitting in for 12 hours in a meeting, uh, a management meeting. I think oh. I'm sitting here. I'm <laughs> supposed to be finishing these reports for court. I'm supposed to be working on a serial case. And I'm sitting in a meeting that I've got nothing to contribute for the next 11 hours. Yes. So that kind of stuff became absolutely frustrating that we had a handful of people to cover the whole country. And it was an, an unwinnable uh, scenario. So resources are a big issue. Mm. So now you're in threat assessment, which obviously to some extent is based on profiling. It is. It's, I suppose you can wear it's a different application where the work I did in the police was retrospective. Something bad had right. happened to somebody. I can't undo that. I can't fix that. We can only help get the best positive outcome, which is the person gets caught and convicted. But you can't change it. Yes. You know, so in a way it was kind of like, yeah, we caught him, but it kind of very quickly that fades and you feel like, hmm, okay. Whereas threat assessment is about identifying concerns as early as possible, yeah. assessing them for how worried we should be, and then developing a strategy to intervene that that concern doesn't become a reality. So I focus mainly on the workplace. So, I mean, a simple example is a, de- it's a CEO gets a death threat. Right. Or an angry customer sends a very concerning email that we're not, cons- we're now not sure about where this is going to go. Assess how concerning, we sh- how concerned we should be and, and develop a strategy that we prevent that person from doing something stupid. And of course, through that, not harming someone in that context. Um, and that's rewarding because you can prevent yes. and you can actively see, well, nothing happened. Therefore, whatever you did helped. So in a sense, you've moved to the other side yeah. in terms of what you were not able to do profiling mm. retrospectively into being able to prevent prospectively. And very much part of us developing that assessment is understanding the person who's making that threat. So, of course, we have anonymous threats where we're limited. Right. We only have that communication, what can we get from the communication. And sometimes you can tell the person clearly has mental health issues. Right. Um, and other times we do know who it is because it's an angry customer who's made multiple threats. Right. Um, and we're obviously able to make a far more tailored risk assessment if we know who the person is. Yes. Their background, what they've done before, their, their personality, their behaviors, their, their Facebook posts that they tag, what are they like, you know, we can get a lot more information to be, to be much more nuanced in determining the risk. Okay, so essentially all your background is now being put to a different use, mm. but in a way that is potentially more satisfying? Mm. Yeah, I'd definitely say it's more satisfying in the sense, like I say, we can prevent something from happening, and of course uh, financially more satisfying, no, obviously. you know, I always kind of say, you know, I spent four and a half years in the police and my colleagues who were just doing private practice were in like 10 times more than me. <laughs> was it worth it? But uh, it definitely was, I think, uh, the reward. Was. Well, I think it gave you the foundation, mm. which has brought you to where you are. And obviously you have different kind of management issues, but you're more in control of those management issues, mm. basically having your own company. Jared, I want to thank you for joining us and giving of your time to share your knowledge and expertise. I think it's been a fascinating discussion. And obviously, you know, we could go on and that Mm. tends to be the problem with these episodes, but greatly appreciated. And just echoing the sentiments expressed by the aunt of one of the victims of the Limpopo serial killer. And this comes from, uh, this is a lyric actually from a song by the Smiths from their debut album. And the song's called Suffer Little Children. And it goes back to the Manchester Moor murders that I alluded to. And the lyric goes like this. For a child cries until the day you die, we will haunt you when you laugh. Yes, you could say we are a team. You might sleep, but you will never dream. And I think that's a direct uh, comment to the killers from the dead children. 
Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.